0: Back when I was in college, I had a girlfriend that lived next door to my aunt. Now, this was before I met and married my wife. Um, So my girlfriend lived next door to my aunt. That's how I met her. She was my aunt's next-door neighbor. And I was there visiting one time, and they got into a discussion and a disagreement, which became an argument. And what the argument was was about fuel efficiency in the car. And uh, all right, I hear somebody say all right. And what the argument was over is if you are driving down a hilly road, is it more fuel efficient to just hold a steady throttle setting and let the car speed up and slow down? Or is it more fuel efficient to adjust the throttle and maintain a constant speed? Well, this disagreement became more and more heated. Uh, but what was interesting to me was that Both of them were basing their argument on what seemed to make sense to them. And each of them regarded the fact that it just seemed like seemed to them that that's the way it should be, that that was proof that it was true. But what was obvious to me is neither one of them knew. (laughs) And apparently neither one of them had ever bothered to check it out because they didn't think they needed to. Well, it just makes sense to me. Common sense, I'll tell you that. Well, they didn't end up in the same place. Let's pray. Father in heaven, uh, we thank you that we can trust you as the all-wise and all-powerful creator. Lord, we thank you that you know what's true and uh, you have chosen to reveal certain things to us and to bless us and uh, to offer us an eternity with you. By your grace and mercy. Lord, we pray as we look at what you have uh, told us in your word about your creation, that your spirit would empower us to grasp and respond to that the way you desire. And Lord, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. All right. Today, we're going to be talking about everybody's favorite topic, and that is science. And... Um, I think that this message will be a lot of fun for all of us. i got lots of pictures, and uh, it really is a fun topic. I love science. I grew up around science. I did science. I'm a veterinarian, and I earn the my bulk of my living most of my adult life as an applied science as a veterinarian. My father was a scientist. That was actually his title for all the years I was growing up. He was staff scientist at what was then General Dynamics. And we're going to talk about that. Uh, I'm going to use it as an example. Partly I'm going to kind of brag about what my daddy did. Uh, But it'll be fun because what we're going to find is the Bible actually has a tremendous amount to say about how we look at and view his creation. We just read a bunch of it. And it's kind of a burden for me that in our society, science is getting to where it's kind of got a bad rap. Like somehow science and studying science is a threat to our Christian faith. And it is exactly the opposite. That's what all these songs were about. And what I want to try to sell you on is what God has said about what it's like to look and study his creation and what our response should be. And find that that's actually a very wonderful thing and to be encouraged by that. I also hope that I can convince you that what I'm sharing this morning is actually overtly taught in the Bible. You know, a lot of times stuff gets taught, um, Christian stuff gets taught where it's just sort of a theological construct where people pick up little pieces of things here and there that are incidentally mentioned in the Scriptures, and then they kind of cobble together some kind of a picture. But this is something that is just right there in black and white where it's the main topic of the passage. So let's take a look at some of these. Now, there's an insert in your bulletin, an outline, and that's a little bit misleading because most of what's on that outline we're going to cover in just a few minutes. And that's the reason I wrote it out in complete sentences with no blanks and have a bunch of scripture references is I'm going to blow through that for just a few in just a few minutes. Just as a reminder of what most of us in this audience already know, but just as a reminder, as a groundwork so that we can move on. Most of our time this morning is actually going to be there near the bottom, where in the brackets it says models. That's actually where we're going to spend most of our time. So let's kind of remind ourselves of the big picture of what the Lord tells us about the world around us. And by the way, when I'm talking about science, what I mean, you can look up different definitions in the dictionary. The way I'm using it is simply when we look at the world around us and we try to make sense of it as how do things work? And especially if we kind of do that in a systematic way rather than guessing we just kind of watch and look and we think about it you know what's going on that's what I'm talking about so uh, we just read from Genesis 1 some things about creation and all I'm going to do is remind us uh, about some things that God makes the point when he tells us about creation uh, just a few basic things creation is not God and God is not creation I mean things like You know, the sun and the moon are things God made. They're not gods. And also, the earth is not my mother. And the earth, uh, you know, creation is not somehow a a part of God. God is something separate. Creation is something he made, and we're part of that. And some characteristics of creation. I made a list here. Uh, These are just my words. uh, But I think it's part of the point that god makes when he tells us about creation that carl just read did you notice some things about that uh it seems to be very orderly i have on there differentiated and integrated that may sound contradictory you know he separates the water from the land and birds from the animals things are systematic they're differentiated ducks lay eggs that hatch into ducks and mama goats have baby goats it's you know, you don't have to wonder when a goat has a baby, oh, I wonder what it's going to be. I wonder if it's going to be a duck. Or, um, And he makes a point about the stars and the sun and the moon. He makes the explicit point that part of that is to govern things, that there's a regular pattern. And partly he's referring to religious feasts, but also he's talking about harvesting and knowing when to plant There's an organization to it. There are predictable processes. And he expects us to operate. And he thinks that's good. He says seven times. It's good. So another thing that the scripture makes a big point out of is that it's legitimate for us to study and use creation. Um. And again, I'm just going to blow through this. God himself explicitly and repeatedly gives us a responsibility. Well, actually, I have a longer one in your bulletin. He, he gives us permission and freedom and even a responsibility to wisely work with the resources he's given us for our own support and benefit, for the benefit of others, and to glorify him. Uh, we saw that God put Adam and Eve in the garden and said, work the garden even before the sin, even before sin, that that was what they were supposed to do. I'm just going to read a couple of things we read in Genesis. There's an interesting thing in Exodus 31, um, and I'm just going to blow real fast through here. I'm not expecting anybody to follow me and find these. I've got them all marked in my Bible. Uh, God has given Moses instructions about the tabernacle they're going to build, and he's told them what kind of materials and resources they need to use. But it's interesting in Exodus 31, it says, Now the Lord spoke to Moses saying, Look, I've called by name Bezalel, the son of Uri, the son of Ur of the tribe of Judah. And I have filled him with the spirit of God in wisdom, in understanding, in knowledge, and in all kinds of craftsmanship. To make artistic designs for work in gold, silver, bronze, in the cutting of stones for settings. And in the carving of wood. That he can work in all kinds of craftsmanship. And behold I myself have appointed with him. Aholiab. The son of Ahisamach Of the tribe of Dan. And in the hearts of all who are skillful. I have put skill. That they may make all that I have commanded. Uh, the tent of meeting. The ark of testimony. The mercy seat. And so on. So God is having these uh, God is actually giving people skills and ability to use these resources that he's given them, um, in this case, to make things that are going to be honoring to God and facilitate their worship. Uh, there's also, in Deuteronomy 8, you can mark this because we're going to come back to Deuteronomy 8 two or three times. I, for me, Deuteronomy 8 is one of the most important chapters in all of Scripture. But I'm particularly going to read in ver- uh, beginning in chapter 8, verse 7. In this section, God is having Moses prepare the people to cross the Jordan River into the promised land. They've been wandering around in the desert for 40 years. And they're about to go in. In the beginning of verse 7, it says, The Lord your God's bringing you into a good land. It's a land of brooks of water, of fountains and springs, flowing forth in valleys and hills. A land of wheat and barley, vines, fig trees, pomegranates, olive oil, honey. A land where you'll eat food without scarcity, which you won't lack anything. A land whose stones are iron and out of whose hills you can dig copper. When you've eaten or satisfied, you'll bless the Lord your God for the good land which he has given you. So he's giving him all of these things and these plants, but they're things they're going to cultivate I like science and I like technology. Have you ever wondered, he says, this is a good land. they got rocks with iron in them and you can dig copper. Does it ever strike you as a weird thing to say? Why in the world would God say that? God seems to think it's a good thing and he seems to assume that they're going to be digging that and mining that and using it. What do you do with copper? Well, you dig ore out, both iron, and you have to process it, don't you? You have to dig it out and smelt it and you get copper. If you take copper and you mix a little bit of certain other things in with it, what do you end up with? Bronze. My only point is, you see here that God considers this a good thing that he's giving them to use these resources and use technology for various things. And he's going to elaborate on that later on. But, again, the point I want to make is, while they didn't have the level of technology that we have now, they had technology, and it was always appropriate for them to use that and enjoy it. Uh, I kept thinking about beavers and birds that build nests, but I thought about beavers. You know, I understand that beavers build dams. But their dams are not 150 feet tall with hydroelectric turbines in them to send electricity to the hospitals in order to run the autoclaves to sterilize the instruments they use to do surgery on their children. You know, there's a difference between a beaver dam and what God... The abilities that God has given us... In having made us in his image to be creative and use these resources, um, there's a qualitative difference. God intends for us to do that. Um, I'm going to read just one more. I'm not going to read uh, all of these references in here, but I love this one in Ecclesiastes. And again, we'll come back to Ecclesiastes some more times. But. Uh, The writer is encouraging people. He said, the light's pleasant and it's good for the eyes to see the sun in 11. What he's talking about, it's good to be alive. As hard as life is, it's good to be alive. Indeed, if a man should live many years, let him rejoice in them all. And let let him remember the days of darkness, for there will be many. Everything that is to come will be uh, futility. But he says, rejoice, young man, during your childhood. Let your heart be pleasant during the days of young manhood. Follow the impulses of your heart and the desires of your eyes. God's given us tremendous freedom to use these abilities and resources given us. But we do need to keep in mind that God will bring you to judgment. So remove grief and anger from your heart. Put away path, pain from your body because childhood and the prime of life are fleeting. We're going to come back to Ecclesiastes. That confuses a lot of people. Um, so... It's expected that we're going to use these resources. God also explicitly and repeatedly draws our attention to his creation, which includes us, is evidence in who and what he is and who and what we are. Um, We read Psalm 19, uh, Romans 1, 19 and 20 is at the top of your bulletin. I'll just make a reference to Job 38, you recall, and we'll come back to Job in a little while, why God does it. But when God wants to make a point to Job about where he's in error, he starts out by saying, look at the world around you and learn something. We'll come back to that. Um, I love in Isaiah 45... He's making reference to the Genesis account that Carl just read. Isaiah says, For thus says the Lord who created the heavens. Now he's the God who formed the earth and made it. And he established and he did not create it a waste place. But formed it to be inhabited. Remember the first line in Genesis? The the world was formless and void. That is empty. Well, Isaiah is saying, you know, God changed that. I am the Lord and there is no one else. I've not spoken in secret in some dark land. I didn't say to the offspring of Jacob, seek me in a waste place. I, the Lord, speak righteousness, declaring things that are upright. Again, the point here is that God often draws our attention to creation. He wants us to look at the things that he made and wonder at them and study them. And use them. Uh, and again, this is overtly taught over and over and over. But the scripture also clearly teaches that there are limitations in how thoroughly we can understand things and what we can accomplish. Now, I've got two categories here because I think they're both taught. One is that we have a limitation in how Fully we can understand things simply based on the fact that we are creatures and not the creator. Uh, Most of you can probably quote those first two references in Proverbs 3. uh, I'll get it mixed up. When I'm standing in front of people, I can't quote scripture. Uh, I think that's the one where um, trust in the Lord with all your heart. Lean not on your own understanding. Point is, we're limited And how much we can understand. Even though God's given us a lot of abilities, we're limited. We're always ultimately dependent on him. The Isaiah 55 is where uh, the Lord is talking about my ways are as high above your ways as the heavens are above the earth. And there he's specifically talking about his plan of salvation and what he's doing to draw people back to him. But he's pointing out, in case anybody missed it, God is saying, you're not me. So trust me. I want to point out a couple of things that we're going to come back to later uh, to show the kind of thing that the Lord often does uh, where he'll draw attention to something in the physical world and make a point out of it. In Mark 4, um, it's one of the places where Jesus is talking about what the kingdom of God is like. That is, this work God is going to do to Fix the mess the world is in, and he's going to form a kingdom that's different. There's going to be a new world order. And in Mark 4, verse 30, Jesus says, Now, how are we going to picture the kingdom of God? What parable can we use? Uh, I'm sorry, I'm back in verse 26. I meant to use uh, 426. The kingdom of God is like a man who casts seed upon the soil and he goes to bed at night and he gets up by day and the seed sprouts and grows. Now, how he himself doesn't know. He just knows if I plant it in water, it, it sprouts and grows. How? I don't know. The soil produces crops by itself. First the blade, then the head, then the the mature grain in the head. But when the crop permits, he immediately puts in the sickle because the harvest has come. And he says, the kingdom of God is like that. It's going to grow. You're going to see it. But you're probably not going to understand everything about how it happens. There's a similar thing that happens when Nicodemus comes to jesus to talk ask him about how one can be uh enter the kingdom of heaven well how do you get in jesus says well you have to be born again and he says what that doesn't make any sense what are you even talking about so jesus talks a little bit more about it but he says well You can't enter the kingdom of heaven unless you're born again by the Spirit. Now, don't be amazed by what I said to you. You must be born again. Now, here's what he says. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear the sound of it. But you don't know where it comes from or where it's going. So is everyone who's born of the Spirit. So he says, look at the world around you. There's things that happen around you all the time. The trees are waving there, and you know, you're seeing the effect of the wind, you don't really see the wind. You don't know where it came from. You know where it went. But you're going to see the effect that it has. And that's what God, Jesus, is saying about the work of the Holy Spirit. We're going to see the effects, but sometimes we won't understand how it happened. There's other reasons why our, our, uh, we're limited in our understanding. And that is that because of the fall, because of sin, things are messed up. And the first one is that our hearts are proud and our minds are faulty. Now, I know in Hebrew and Greek that uh, our hearts and our minds are the same thing. But it just sounded better when I made my overhead. Um, I'm just going to read one of these. Uh, You know about this from Genesis 3 when the curse comes. and. Uh, But in Deuteronomy 8, we're going to go back to Deuteronomy 8 because this is one of the most important passages in the message today. They're preparing to go into the promised land and God is saying, when you were in the wilderness for 40 years, I let you go hungry. I had you in the wilderness where there was nothing And I miraculously provided manna for you. And God tells them, I did this specifically so that you would know that you're dependent on me. But now I'm going to bring you into the promised land where all these plants are growing. And that's what we read a few minutes ago. There's going to be, um, there's going to be vines and wheat and barley and Olive oil, and you can dig iron and copper. And in other words, they're going to start using these resources God has given them. But now look what he says, verse 11. Beware that you don't forget the Lord your God by not keeping his commandments and his ordinances and statutes, which I'm commanding you today. Otherwise, when you've eaten and are satisfied and you've built your houses and you lived in them, when your herds and your flocks multiply, your silver and gold multiply, all that you have multiplies, then your heart will become proud and you'll forget the Lord your God who brought you out from the land of Egypt out of the house of slavery. He led you through the great terrible wilderness with its fiery serpents and scorpions and thirsty ground where there was no water. He brought water for you out of the rock of Flint. In the wilderness, He fed you manna which your fathers didn't know that He might humble you, that He might test you. Notice this. To do good for you in the end. He wasn't kicking them while they were down. He was doing this to help them. But now look, verse 17. Otherwise, you may say in your heart, when you prosper, by using the resources I've given you, with the skills I've given you, when you prosper, you may say in your heart, my power and the strength of my hand made me this wealth. But you shall remember the Lord your God. It is He who is giving you power to make wealth, that He may confirm His covenant which He swore to your fathers as it is to this day. Now He's speaking to the nation Israel going into the promised land, but there's The bulk of this applies to all of the human race. Anytime we have the ability to do something that beavers don't do, and even what beavers do building their dam, it's because that's how God made them and gave them the instinct to do that. But any of the things that we do when we prosper using the resources God gave us, it's because He is the one who made, gave us the ability to do it. Everything we have is a result of Him. But what do we do? We do this. What do scientists do if they figure out, find some medicine that will cure some illness? Is there is the temptation to say, I don't think I need God anymore. I think I've got a handle on it. Another is that creation is bent and God bent it and he bent it for a reason. This is simply a reference to the curse. And you can look up these verses Uh, I was showing this to someone the other day, and I said, what do you mean bent? Um, Well, that's what the writer in Ecclesiastes says. Um, He says in chapter 1 that I set my mind to seek and explore by wisdom concerning all that's been done under heaven. It's a grievous task which God has given to the sons of men to be afflicted with. I've seen all the works which have been done under the sun, and behold, all is vanity and striving after wind. What is crooked cannot be straightened, and what is lacking cannot be counted. Creation is crooked. Well, if you miss it, just keep reading in Ecclesiastes, and he elaborates on it in chapter 7. He says, consider the work of God, for who is able to straighten what he has bent. That's actually the same word as crooked in chapter 1. God bent creation. That's just Genesis chapter 3. Because of sin, God has so worked in creation that it don't work right all the time. And the frustrating thing is most things do still work right most of the time. You know, fortunately, it's fairly predictable what happens if you put vaporized hydrocarbon in a chamber with highly compressed air and throw a match in there, it's pretty predictable what's going to happen. And so we can make cars and we can make turbofan engines. Um, Things do work systematically most of the time, but there's always just enough glitches that things blow up, things crash, and we can't fix them. And he explains why that is in Ecclesiastes, the reason he does that is to remind us that we are not the creator. He does it to remind us that we are not in control. So, what I want to point out here is that as we look at the world around us and we make observations about how things work, We begin to draw, make up patterns in our mind. Okay, I think this explains how this happens. And I'm going to use the word models. And although I don't know that there's an equivalent word in the scripture, the idea is everywhere. And I'll show you a lot of examples. But here, don't be scared now. I'm going to put a dictionary definition up here. Um, A model is just simply when we look at stuff and we come up with a statement about how we think life works. Okay, and that might be simple, it might be um, elaborate. For example, red sky in morning, sailor take warning. Red sky at night, sailor's delight. What am I doing? I'm just kind of watching life and beginning to think, well, there seems to be a pattern here. Seems like when I see this, this is what happens. I may or may not know why. Well, that's all a model is. But it can get real elaborate, you know, in weather. Uh, You know, what scientists can do is they can try to be deliberate about it and collect lots of information. Oh, that monitor looked different from this one. They can collect lots of data, all of these hurricane tracks, and they can try to figure out what the connection is between that and seawater temperature and cold fronts and hot fronts, and they try to put all this together and come up with a model. Okay, we think... That this causes this and this causes that. and So we're going to come up with a model that we think explains things. Maybe we can predict stuff. So maybe we can predict when a tropical storm is forming in the Gulf where it's going to go. And you all see this on the weather. And the reason they'll have several different projected tracks is there's different models. You know, some models think that this will have that effect and this will have that effect. And we run all the numbers through the model and we come up with these different answers. Um, So that's an example of a model. Another model, growing stuff. You know, any five-year-old in here has a model in their mind of how things grow. You know, you get seeds and you put them in the dirt and put water on them and they sprout and grow. Um, But we can get more scientific about it and begin to try to collect information Um, I just picked this. I've got these things all just random off the Internet uh, where they're trying to account for things like uh, how closely together you plant the seeds and weed stress and moisture and diseases, pests, you know, all kinds of things like that. They try to come up with all the things that can influence and what might help us do a better job of growing more crops. And that's what we're talking about in terms of models. So now what I'm going to do is I'm going to spend a while on a particular example of scientist working on a model. And this one is kind of fun for me, and I think you'll enjoy it, because what I'm going to do is I'm going to use an example from my dad's doctoral dissertation. My dad has a Ph.D. from Princeton that he got when I was um, little, and this is a doctoral dissertation that he wrote when I was four years old. And I remember he had uh, tortoiseshell rim glasses like these when I was a little kid. And I have a picture of me sitting at his desk wearing his glasses. Now I'm old and I'm wearing tortoiseshell glasses. Um, But I want to look at this and there's a reason why. I'm actually aiming for one very specific thing in this. But I think it will be fun to show what science is. Because I was talking to David Hubbard earlier. One burden I have is that how many Americans don't really understand what science is. Even though they tried to teach you in high school. I don't want to hurt your feelings, but most of you didn't get it. <laughs> a few weeks ago, I was asking my dad about his doctoral dissertation because I'm, just, I'm interested in aviation. I'm not a pilot. I'm not an engineer. I'm a, I'm a veterinarian. Well, he got out a piece of paper and he started drawing stuff. And this is not his drawing. Uh, He started drawing stuff and explain it. And I thought I knew something about airplane wings. But the more he drew, the more I realized, what? What? Um, That's a very, very oversimplified drawing. In fact, it's so oversimplified, it's not really even right. This is coming closer to what he drew. And specifically all that turbulent there on the back end of the stuff. He was drawing that and he started talking about the pressure that as you go back in that turbulent where the words say turbulent flow back there that as you go further back in turbulent the pressure is actually increasing. And um, I said, wait, 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 wait a minute. The pressure is going up? I would have thought that the pressure would be going down as you went back. And my dad did what he 's done a thousand times all the years I would ask him about science there 'd be this this kind of this pause when he 's trying to decide how to answer and he 'd say, "You would think but that 's not what happens. The pressure's increasing. Well, he kept talking some more. there were some other things about pressure like um, Increasing pressure, and like I I was assuming because the pressure was increasing that maybe the air would compress. And he'd say, no, the speeds we're talking about here, these high and low pressure areas, there's no compression or expansion of the air going on. I said, wait, I I thought if the pressure increased like it would be getting compressed. Another long pause. Counterintuitive, isn't it? Well... (laughs) To me it is. Now, to him it's not because he's been doing this for 60 years. But anyway, that's so true of the turbulent and the high pressure that the back of the wing, the air is actually flowing backwards from the back of the wing towards the front. I said, what? And so that's what this drawing, I got this off the internet too. And if you look over there on the right, you see some of those blue lines are actually going the wrong direction. You see up there that adverse pressure gradient? It's because the pressure is increasing. Now, I'm not trying to make you aerospace engineers. I'm not one. But follow this because this is cool. This is interesting. Do you think that's true? You can find anything on the Internet. Whatever you want to believe, you can find somebody on the Internet that will tell you that. I just thought this picture was so cool. And I thought... You know what? When Rich sees this picture, he's going to get a roll of tape and some yarn. He's going to stick that all over the wing of his bonanza and go flying. But look at the foreground in that wing. You know, on the left edge, that's the front of the wing. And all those yarns are nice and straight. But then all of a sudden, everything goes whack. And that's because this air is stirring all around. In fact, some of the yarns, are, they're pointing the wrong direction. And I remember my dad saying that that's talking about the adverse Pressure gradient, he said, it's adverse in the point of an engineer and how what you want the wing to do. And then what he said I thought was really funny. He said, it's especially adverse from the viewpoint of the pilot (laughs) if he's wanting his airplane to fly. By the way, if you look at the far end of the wing, up the upper right end of the screen, you see all of them laying nice and straight, flowing in the right directions because as people study this and they understand it better they can make a better wing. So it turns out that if you could find a way to calculate that instead of having to take yarns all over every wing, you know, try different shapes of wings and things, if you could find a way to calculate that, if you could figure out a model, it'd save you a lot of time and money if you could at least get in the ballpark making a wing and then you could fine-tune it. And so that's what my dad was going to try to do. By the way... You may think, well, I really don't care. How many of you have ever flown in an airplane? I'm I'm curious. Has anyone in here ever not flown in an airplane? There's bound to be Okay, there are a few people that never have. Uh, It's kind of a treat. I benefit from the fact that people do this because I have flown back and forth to Papua New Guinea now. I've, I've lost count. I think it's 28 times. I have flown across the Pacific Ocean 56 times at 39,000 feet, going five or 600 miles an hour. And the reason is, is because there's people who do stuff like this. And it's like the Lord is letting us enjoy and benefit from how He's made the world and the resources, all of that iron that we can dig out of the mountain and, and dig copper out of the mountain, and we can use it, and we can use the amazing abilities that He's given us to be creative It's it's just astonishing. And we get to benefit. I like air conditioning. When I'm in Papua New Guinea, three degrees south of the equator, and we don't have air conditioning. I like air conditioning. So here's my example. My dad's dissertation was incompressible turbulent boundary layers and adverse pressure gradients. So all he is, is he's saying, he was going to try to come up with a way to calculate... To get a pretty good idea of where all that turbulence, where on the wing is it going to form? And how rapidly is it going to build up? What's the shake going to be? And he was going to try to come up with a way to calculate it. Now this was relatively new because computers were new. People knew the math before but it took so long to do the math with a slide rule that it just wasn't possible. So I took some pictures of my dad's dissertation. Just because I thought it looked cool. So, I've got this stuff, and I didn't even take pictures of pages in order. I just took pictures of pages that I thought looked cool. Um, I especially liked that one. My dad said that he paid this lady twenty-five dollars to type this for. Her. Now, this was 1962, and he said that she actually enjoyed it because it wasn't boring. She had to figure out how to make these symbols on a manual typewriter. Um, I took this picture of this page because I thought it was really funny. Um, look at this up at the top. What it was on the previous page, it confirms a result already obtained by this other guy. This suggests that considerable effort can be spared by expanding F in powers of whatever that is equals whatever that is. Dad, my dad's watching this morning. Thank you for sparing us considerable effort. I am relieved, I'm sure you are. So for brevity, let's let whatever that is equal what that is. So that's going to save us a lot of time. Maybe we'll get out on lunch on time, right? Uh, by the way, what's really interesting, Look, at, can you, from where you are, can you read the bottom of that? When my dad was doing his dissertation, Princeton had one computer, and it was tied up. But my dad had done his master's degree at A&M, so he went down to A&M, And they let him use their computer, which was in one of the only rooms on the campus that was air-conditioned because it had tubes in it. it. And it took 50 hours of computer time to run all his computations. Now, my dad did say that on a little pocket scientific calculator now, he could do all those calculations very briefly. But that's why this was never done by hand with a pencil and a slide rule. Uh, So we come to this page. And this page here is the reason that I'm using his dissertation as an example. Because this is what science is. And this is what the Lord wants us to know. He makes a statement there as he's building this model... He says, "Since whatever that is equals whatever that is, I don't know. It doesn't matter for for you and me. Because of that, then closer stipulation that whatever that is equals whatever that is, I don't know. His stipulation for that it's not unreasonable. Now, do you realize what he's saying? Now, I don't know. I don't know the math. I don't know." fluid dynamics, and I had one semester of calculus in college, and I made an A in it, but I never knew what was going on. And a week after I left the class, I forgot everything. I can't read any of this. But what I can read is what Dad is saying is, we pretty much know this and know this from experience and measurements, and so it makes sense to us, it makes sense then to make this assumption in our calculations and just plug that in. You realize he's, he's being very conscious that he's aware that it's not exactly making something up. It's an educated guess. So look what he says. This stipulation that whatever that is equals whatever that is, it's not unreasonable. But the fact that we assume that epsilon is, and it had some, has something to do with the shape and the viscosity of the air and stuff like that. The fact that we assume that is a mathematical approximation which can be verified only by comparing the resultant theory with experiment. See what he's saying? Just because it makes sense to me don't mean it's true. We better check it out. And so that's what they did. I don't actually know if this chart goes with those equations. he has got a bunch of charts in the back where that's what this is. If you look at the caption at the bottom, he's taking his calculations and comparing it to things that they actually measured on a wing or in a wind tunnel because he's saying, let's see if my model works. The fact that it makes sense doesn't prove that it's true. We need to check it out. So what do you know about models? I'm going to put... The same thing three times, three different ways. Um, The first one is, this is what my um, freshman chemistry professor told me in college. I was trying to understand some things about inorganic chemistry and I went to him and he said, David, your problem is you're looking at this model that we use as though it's the real thing. And he said, it's not. All a model is, is us just trying to organize our thoughts about things we observe. Uh, But the model itself is not reality. Well, not long after that, I was taking uh, physics. And again, I go to my dad for help. And lo and behold, he told me the same thing. I was talking about some model in physics. And my dad made this statement. He said, oh, models are always wrong. At least in the sense that they're incomplete. In other words, the part of the model you have, the part you think you know might be right. But they're always going to be incomplete because there will always be more factors that you don't know about. It doesn't matter what the topic is. Okay, now let's fast forward many, many years. And now my son is in graduate school. And my second son recently got his master's degree or a few years ago. And I thought it was funny because he was taking a course on fire. His degree is in forestry. And he said in fire, everything is about models. They've got models where you factor in things like uh, the fuel ladder and humidity and uh, wind speed and all of these things to predict what would happen if a fire, if a brush fire started, the effect it would have on trees. Everything is about models. But he said what was interesting is his professor, who was a leader in the field, He required them at the bottom of every test that they took, they were required to write this. I thought that was funny. But it's actually true. Now, I think what happens is because people don't really understand science, they vacillate between two things that are contradictory, and they're not happy with reality. On the one hand, they think, well, experts understand everything. Oh, I, yeah, under, experts understand that. Well, the experts will say, well, you know, this is how much we know. But on the other hand, at the same time, we're distrustful of experts. Oh, they don't know nothing. They're wrong all the time. You know, it's that deal about doctors. You know, when you're in a car wreck you run to your doctor but then when they can't solve everything it's like well doctors don't know everything so that means they don't know anything right it's it's one or the other that's what we do but the scripture is very clear it talks about this god says enjoy all the amazing things that you can understand but don't be surprised when you hit a wall of course you can. Of course you hit a wall. You're a creature, but enjoy the things you can know. Uh, so, by the way, uh, you know later on, as I was like in junior high and elementary and uh, elementary and junior high, my dad worked at General Dynamics, and he was mainly taking uh, holographic or three dimensional pictures of shock waves, of models in supersonic tunnels and stuff like that. But again, you know, my dad would get out a piece of paper and a pencil, and he'd start drawing these lines and talking about. Pressure gradients and all this other stuff. And one thing my dad would never say is, "Oh yeah, we got all that figured out." Now, you know this is this is old tech. That's an old picture. That's not from my dad. That's just something I pulled off the internet. But he showed me some of the ones that he had taken. But when you talk to real scientists who actually do research. <clears throat> They know more than you even know that you don't know. I mean, they know things that you didn't even know were a question because the more they study, the more questions come up. But one thing that real scientists will never say, yeah, oh, we got it all figured out. Because the deeper they dig, the more questions there are. So let's come to some conclusions that the scripture makes. My reasoning, based on what I think I know, is never an authoritative source of truth about anything. Whether regarding the physical or the spiritual, it's only an educated guess. That's what my dad was doing in his dissertation. But that's also true about God and building his kingdom. And that's what God often does. He reminds people about our relationship with the physical world, what we can and cannot understand. And he said, well... That goes double for me. What makes sense to me is never a valid argument against what God has clearly stated in his word. Now, you may be wondering, David, why in the world are we talking about this? Because most Christians that I work with, all that stuff that we looked at at the beginning of the message, they would all say, oh, yeah, if we're in Sunday school, we all know the right answer. I cannot tell you how many conversations I've had with people when it will come to things in the Scripture that they will actually just say, I know that's what the Scripture says, but it just doesn't make sense to me, so I don't buy it. What makes sense to me is not a reliable judge of what God has done or will do in specific situations. We're going to look at some particular examples where the Lord does this, um, where the Lord is going to call people on the carpet for failing to trust him. And what God is going to do is he's going to show that this is what's going on. And often he'll draw a connection with uh, our view of creation. You guys know the story of Job. Job's a good guy. Nice family. Everything's going well. And then the world falls in on him. And. His friends come to him and they look at him suffering. And what do they do? He says, um, or one of his friends comes up to him. One of his friends come up to him and he says, Remember now, whoever perished being innocent, or where were the upright destroyed, Now, according to what I've seen, those who plow iniquity and those who sow trouble harvest it. By the breath of God, they perish. And by the blast of his anger, they come to an end. What are you saying? Well, this guy, he's got a model in his head about how the world works. And that is, if you sin, God slaps you down. So if you're getting slapped down in life, what does that obviously mean? God's against you, right? Right. So, he's got this model in his head about how life works, and so he's explaining what's going on based on his model. Well, what's wrong with his model? It's wrong. In a way, it's right. God does judge sin, doesn't he? He always judges sin. But the thing is, that's not the only thing that's true, there are other things that are true. Namely, God's patience and forbearance, mainly the fact that God was going to send his son to take that wrath on himself. So he had a model, but he was because it made sense to him. He was absolutely determined that that was the truth. Well, you know, Job said, I don't think so. And so they go back and forth and back and forth until finally they say, all right, Job, what's your explanation? Whoa. Job's explanation was God's not fair. He's a bully. Chapter thirty (laughs) eight. I get choked up. To me, it's one of the most terrifying passages in Scripture. These guys have been yammering, yammering, yammering for days. God steps in and says, "Job, stand up. I got some questions for you." Whoa. And when you look several pages, what does God do? He points to creation and he focuses on two main things. You look at that. Can you do that? Can you make that? He also focuses on the understanding. He says, do you understand why that happens? He talks about some of the things that wild animals do. Do you understand that? Do you have the power? Do you have the understanding? Job gets the message. Just like we don't understand everything in creation... There's things I can't answer and I can't explain. <clears throat> How much more true is that of God? And so Job responds. He says, I trust you, Lord. <clears throat> there are lots of examples in Scripture where this happens, where people think they know what God is going to do or should do, and they're cheesed off when He doesn't. Because what God does doesn't make sense to him. You know the story of Habakkuk. Habakkuk crying out to the Lord, How long, Lord, will I call for you help and you won't hear me? I cry to you violence and you don't save. When are you going to do something? And he's talking about his own society, his own community. When are you going to do something? Well, God starts to answer in verse 5. He says, Look around at the nations around you. Take a look. Be astonished and wonder. Because I'm going to do something in your days. You you're not even going to believe what I'm going to tell you. And he says, I'm going to get this foreign nation to come in here and destroy your country. But at the end of that, he says, he tells them, but they will be held guilty. Those who think of their strength as their God. So Habakkuk starts to respond and Habakkuk says, "O oh Lord, you're from everlasting, my God and holy one. We won't die. You, Lord, have appointed them to judge and you, O Rock, have established them to correct. Your eyes are too pure to approve evil and you cannot look on wickedness with favor. Why do you look on wickedness with favor? God, what on earth are you doing? They're worse than we are. Why are you silent when the wicked swallow us up? Those are, they're swallowing us up. We're not as bad as they are. What's Habakkuk doing? He's got a model in his mind. This is how God works. And when it doesn't seem to go that way, what is his conclusion? God ain't doing it right. What should his conclusion be? My model's wrong. I didn't see that coming. I didn't know that. I just, I think about asking my dad. I mean, it's inconsequential because I don't design airplanes. But I I think about my dad and I'm telling him, well, I would have thought the pressure was dropping. You would think. But it doesn't. (laughs) It's counterintuitive, isn't it? Are we going to let God tell us? You know, another example is in John. Some people uh, came up to Jesus and they're passing by and they saw a a man blind from birth. And his disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he would be born blind? You hear all the assumptions in that? They've got a model in their mind, don't they? If a person's blind, we've got people with vision problems here. We've got people with all kinds of disabilities, don't we? If you have a disability, what's the obvious conclusion? Well, you sinned, and God's punishing you, right? That's their model, isn't it? What does Jesus tell them? It wasn't either this man or his parents. It was so God would be glorified. Your model's wrong, bub. Jesus was usually a lot more gracious with these people than I tend to be. I got a share a couple of weeks ago. My wife, whom the Lord gave to me as my helper and as a protector for you, she told me two or three weeks ago when I was working on some stuff, she said, David, I like it when you teach. I even like it when you preach. But I do not like it when you get on your soapbox. And sometimes it's hard to distinguish, you know, when I get wound up about something. But you can see that what God does is he has given us amazing abilities to think and to use and enjoy these incredible resources he's given in the world. And that's part of how we express being in his image, the creativity and the the freedom. He's given us enormous freedom to do things that we want to do within guidelines and parameters. Um, But the danger is when we get to where we think we're doing it by our own strength. So lessons that we learn that should affect how we think about and relate to God. And that is that God continually makes the point. He's the creator. He is the one who's infinite and knows everything. And only him. And he's the only one that can control everything. We can can mine copper and make bronze and make an international space station. But we can't make things that don't occasionally blow up. We're creatures and we're limited. Those are all saying the same thing. So where do we conclude all of this? I want to say, because I love science, don't be afraid to study science. Run to science. Love to uh, study science. Throughout the Scriptures, we saw in Romans 1 and in Psalm 19, God wants you... To look at, gaze at, and study His creation. Science is never going to drive you away from God. Pride and arrogance. And thinking the things you've accomplished in your abilities are your own strength and not a gift from God. That is what will drive you away from God. God. Studying his creation never will. Can I encourage you? We've got little grandkids. Do science. Whether it means going out in the backyard with your grandkids and pick up leaves and follow caterpillars. Or if you're going to the laboratory, look down through the most powerful microscope you can find. And look up through the most powerful telescope you can find. And say, God Almighty! Look at that. Lord, we're so humbled that you would have such concern for us that you would just shower us with such incredible blessings. Lord, help us to enjoy and use those things and protect us from the arrogance and the pride It causes us to think that somehow we're doing all this under our own power. Every scientific discovery is a gift from you to enjoy. Lord, we thank you for that. Lord, we thank you that in all of this, you show us that you are the one who knows the truth. You are the one who offers us life through your son, Jesus Christ, who was the author of all of this that through him you created all these amazing things that he uses us to teach us about his love for us about our guilt before you but the eternal life that you offer us when we trust in your son and you forgive us and give us eternal life lord we thank you for these things in jesus name amen